Hey there, I'm Melanie Reed, and this is The HR Mentor. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to bring you an incredible conversation I had with a wonderful human being who does amazing work in the equity, diversity, and inclusion space. My guest on the show today is Sharon Ningueso. Sharon is the founder and CEO of Quake Lab, a full-stack inclusion and change management consultancy that uses human-centered design to help organizations move their commitment to diversity and inclusion from aspiration to action. An empathetic leader with a passion for community and civic engagement, Sharon is a regular contributor and panelist for the CBC, CTV, Rabble.ca, and Live 88.5. Sharon immigrated to Canada from Kenya in 2010, and before starting Quake Lab in 2019, she worked with organizations in 11 different countries in varying roles including social advocacy and innovation, community building, accessibility, and content creation. In this episode, Sharon and I talk about how human-centered design or design thinking can offer a path to real change in organizations, as well as Sharon's journey to her current role as founder and CEO of Quake Lab. We also get into a conversation about how emerging HR practitioners who are passionate about EDI or whose organizations are engaging in EDI work can get started and make an impact. I think you're going to walk away from this conversation with a lot to think about. So let's get started. Welcome to the HR Mentor Podcast the podcast for emerging HR practitioners to get practical advice, tools, and strategies to build credibility, confidence, and ultimately a fulfilling HR career. Well, Sharon, welcome to the HR Mentor Podcast. I'm so excited you are joining me today and uh, really appreciate your time to chat with me. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. Um, I am a big lover of podcasts, so being on a podcast is is my version of being in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's really great to see how many podcasts have, I guess, hit the airwaves yeah. since the pandemic began. You know, there's so much fantastic content out there. Yeah. Yeah. And it just feels like, you know, it was like one way of having so much accessible information was having the internet in our homes, you know, decades ago. And then you come into a space where now we have this like really curated way to get information, to get the kind of knowledge we want, the skills we want from people who we feel, you know, connected to. So um, this this is a great platform, I think, to be having this conversation. It's awesome. I love that that whole perspective of it being accessible, because I think, you know, it's also made people that we may never hear from or get to interact with accessible to us, right? And that's really fun. Yeah, I'm from Kenya. So we are still a very radio heavy society. And it was really interesting to me when podcasts really hit the the ground running. And I was like, oh, so radio. (laughs) But um, I, I appreciate that it is slightly different in that, you know, we get to also curate our own experience of what's coming in our ears. And I think that's, you know, to to, to speak to what you said, there's a level of accessibility there. Um, my team and I are all about 
autonomy is a big part of equity. And so the ability to choose what you consume, how you consume it is, is a really, is a really fantastic thing. That's awesome. And that's all a great segue to the first thing I, I want to ask you about, Sharon, because I've, you know, obviously spent some time on your website and learned a little bit about you. But I would love to have you talk a little bit about your own career path and how it led you to this place of, you know, owning this amazing company and the work that you're doing today with Quake Labs. So please, if you can tell us your story, we'd love to hear it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's always a, a pretty dangerous question to throw my way because I don't know, do you have a couple of hours? <laughs> Go on a while. Um, so I like to joke, although I don't know if it's a very good joke, but I like to joke that my career has been built single-handedly on rage. <laughs> not, a, not a great source of energy, but you know what? It's a very effective one. Uh, like I mentioned, I'm from Kenya and I came to Canada on my own uh, to attend university. And it has been sort of a, a whirlwind from that point on in that, you know, because of the constraints of immigration, because of the constraints of money with myself and my family, it I, I, I really entered into my 20s being extremely career oriented because where I'm from, you know, sort of education and a strong career was really the only pathway to having some level of success or a life that 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 you know wouldn't leave you spiraling into poverty and so that like I was very sort of single-mindedly focused on what do I want to do with my life like how, what do I want my life to look like not even what do I want to do with my life because like many of us you know in my youth I I jumped from teacher to there was a while where I wanted to be a forensic pathologist and I learned that it's something called the CSI effect <laughs> look it up <laughs> you know just bounce back and forth and so I figured you know what I don't like this this story I'm sold that as an 18 year old I need to know exactly what I want to do with my life what's yeah. easier and more accessible for me is what do I want my life to look like in general where do I want to live what do I want to do with my weekends and my evenings and then sort of start there and then say well what do I know how to do well? What am I uniquely positioned to talk about and to, you know, to leverage for, for capital? And then what is the sweet spot between the things that I'm good at that I can leverage for um, a cost and how I want to live my life? And where is the sweet spot for what, you know, the latter can get me, the former. And that meant that A, I've always been relatively flexible about where I go career-wise because my needs for my life are always going to be, you know, changing. And so I can't expect one career. I suppose that's the way of like, you know, our, our parents and our parents' parents, one career to serve me for 30 odd years. So I started in communications. Uh, that's what I'm, I'm trained to do. And I realized really quickly that that was a field that, although it was very quiet at the moment, like I started in that field when you still had to convince an organization that they should have like a social media page. <laughs> this is when I started. So we were very new, but because of the ways I was seeing um, digital marketing really start to take up space, I knew that that wouldn't be the case for a long time. And so somehow, I'm not sure how, because I wouldn't call myself a wise 20-something year old, but somehow um, there was a there was a story of wisdom and I realized that I had to create kind of a niche for myself 
And so I started bringing together a few things that I thought were really interesting in that, that idea of what is my unique offering as an individual. And so it was my perspective in working the digital marketing space, my perspective as being a young person who knows Sub-Saharan Africa, and also in something that I continue to be interested in from, you know, when I was very young, which is the idea of designing anything with human beings at the center. So what we now call human-centered design. And I created this niche for myself around working with organizations, nonprofits, um, you know, for-profit government, and really being deeply thoughtful about reaching young people and women in sub-Saharan Africa and thinking through well, what exactly do we know? Because in the past, it's always kind of been a copy-paste. Like, this is what we do here, so we're going to do the exact same thing for this new audience. But the reality, especially at the time, is, for instance, a young woman in Tanzania is using Instagram very differently than a young woman in, let's say, you know, Calgary. And so just being able to help organizations really be clear about who they're reaching, what problem, what unique problem they're trying to solve for that person and how to then design for it. And I was working with all these incredible organizations who are doing fantastic work, but always, almost like clockwork, anywhere I was working either permanently or as a consultant, there would be this moment when, usually at the beginning of the year when they were doing some kind of strategic planning, when they would say, you know, diversity and inclusion is so important to us and we really want to put in the time to deal with diversity and inclusion. And first of all, I often found that the way we talked about this was like diversity was the problem that we were trying to solve. Right. And the approach was often very lacking. So like I mentioned, I worked with so many incredibly smart people with with organizations that had really put a lot of time and thought into their strategies, into their approaches, into centering human beings and centering people they were designing for. But the second we moved into the diversity, inclusion and equity, belonging, whatever you want to call it, space, it's like all of that information just magically moved away for like, they just forgot everything they know about the world. And they were like, well, what should we do? Should we just chat? Should we, you know, there was, there was none of that yeah. rigor, none of that, you know, problem solving and, and centering humans in that process. And so that's why I say, I think this, this work for me was driven a little bit by rage because it was very frustrating to know the, the, capabilities and the intellect of a group of people, but not see them apply that same level of, of, you know, again, like rigor and structure to the work when it came to equity. And so that's where I started building Quake Lab by the side of my desk. And it was really informed by this idea that when, you know, for instance, if I was a financial consultant and I came to you and I said, hey, Melanie, you know, it seems like every year at around November, you know, $10 million goes missing from your company. And there's no scenario where you would say to me, oh, that's so sad. You know what we should do is we should have like an unconscious theft um, session once a year for about three hours. And hopefully that'll, you know, really get things going, really get people to understand why it's wrong to steal millions of dollars. And and that that's kind of how we were approaching this work. It's sort of like, oh, that's so sad. We don't need to go into any detail. We don't need to really explore this. We just need to sort of sit in a room for three hours every couple of years. And so I started building something that was focused around, well, let's figure out, let's start defining what our problem is exactly. Because our problem isn't diversity. 
as a whole. Right. What exactly is our problem? Who is it affecting and how is it affecting them? And how do we need to design with equity in mind? Design with equity is a central um, central theme and design with people is a central theme and then move towards actionable outcomes that are measurable. And that is where Quick Lab was born. That is so brilliant. I We could end this now and <laughs> gonna learn some amazing things here. So I just, I just want to go back and, and unpack a couple of things that you've yeah. said. I love the reframe on your career. Mm. What do I want my life to look like? Yeah. That is so brilliant because, <laughs> you know, a, a lot of what I, teach to new graduates and emerging practitioners is this whole idea about really getting to understand who they are before they dive into a job search or or a career change. And it's really about, you know, what am I good at? What, what turns me on? What are my values? And, and, and then fitting the path around it, right? And and that seemed to come really naturally to you, which is amazing. But but it doesn't to most people, right? They they often start with a job posting and a resume, and then they wonder why they don't get very far. But mm-hmm. that's you know, I I think I think the the younger generations are also looking more at that question, what, what do I want my life to look and feel like? Because they've seen their parents burn out, you know, putting in time to the, (laughs) to the pension that, you know, may or may not sustain them. And, and I think younger generations are looking for something different, some quality of life. Oh, absolutely. I think I, I literally just did a talk with um, students in, in, I believe it was the Catholic school board around this concept. And, as I was building the talk, I was doing a little research and I was like, man, I was so smart. I'm the smartest person I know. Wow, you're great, Sharon. And then I looked it up and it's like, there's actually a concept. I think it, it's it's from uh, Japan called Aikagai. And it's really a similar concept of like, yeah. what do I want? What am I good at? What can I monetize? And then the sweet spot is Aikagai, which is how you sort of build the foundations of your life. And I really do think one of the things that attracted me to this idea of first centering not in my career or the way in which I make money essentially, but really centering what I what would bring me joy in my life yes. today. And I got really specific. Like I, I I wasn't talking about just in general. I was saying like, what do I want my house to look like? Like how many bedrooms do I want? Because it, it forced me to get really specific about, okay, so if I'm saying I want to live in this be- this neighborhood with this many bedrooms, then realistically speaking, I have to be bringing in at least this much a month. Exactly. You know, it forced me to get really specific. And if I don't want to work, let's say, you know, if I want X amount of time to travel, if I want to be able to travel, that's also going to inform the work I do. But I think it's worth noting here that a lot of this was born out of a level of privilege, right? In that, for instance, I, I do not have children. And I think that it's very difficult for a person to really just have time to sit and think about how they want to form their lives and take risks. Like there were times when, you know, I remember around, I can't remember how old I was, but I was in between jobs and I had set this thing for myself. I always think like, I always want to be moving forward, never backwards, even if it's like the tiniest increment. And I said, I am not taking anything 
under minimum wage. At the time, I think minimum wage was like $11. And I was like, it's $11.04. That is, is, but I'm not taking any offer under minimum wage. And that meant that, you know, the job search took a little bit longer. And there's a level of privilege there to be able to sit and, you know, survive solely on canned beans for a while until that that perfect thing comes along. Well, I'm I'm glad you pointed that out because that's often, you know, a, a caveat to to some of my advice around this is that I I recognize, you know, that people have bills to pay and yeah. student loans to pay off and and you know, I've made decisions in my career later on to leave very well-paying jobs based on values. Mm-hmm. But I was in a position of having support from my family, of, you know, having my own home already and, and having these places to fall back to and, and recognizing that that's not everybody's situation. So, it, yeah, I think that's really important. So let's talk about human-centered design and, and how you use that to support an organization with their DEI goals because I I spent some time I went to the D school at Stanford and I, I did some work on design thinking and just right at the beginning of the pandemic it was January 2020 that I was there and uh, so this is really exciting for me um, but it's also still very new because I haven't had many spaces to practice uh, yeah well absolutely but I but I am you know in a role at the university where I'm I'm leading up our departmental mm. DEI committee it's it's brand new we're just getting started and we're being asked to develop strategies so <laughs> I'm super excited to hear what you have to say about this yeah. and how you approach this challenge right yeah I mean I feel like I should start with the caveat of there are a ton of really brilliant frameworks that exist out in the ether in the world yeah and none of them are perfect and I think that's really important to know when you are looking to figure out okay what do I want to borrow from to build none of them are perfect all of them will have their flaws and a big thing that I'm a proponent for is when you find something, always, you know, I don't know if any, if you've been, if you did any kind of debate um, when you were in high school, I was in Model United Nations and I put on this hat where I'm like, I need to argue against this so that I feel really confident and that I know what my, what the drawbacks of this particular tool or framework I'm going to use. So design thinking isn't perfect, but yeah. I was initially really drawn a to the idea of centering the people you're designing for because it seems so it seems so natural but we have been terrible at it just from you know product design from service design we we decide what a group of people wants and then we build that rather than you know really just going out and saying well what do you want (laughs) and then that being our starting point so that was the first thing that really drew me to this is to design thinking or human-centered design as a framework but the really the thing that got me to stay the thing that sold me was the structure so human-centered design or design thinking is really a central aspect of it is the process that you take that first starts with getting very intimately familiar with your problem. What is your challenge? What are you trying to solve for? Because 
realistically speaking, every time we create a thing, be it a service, uh, a product, a podcast, whatever it is you're creating, you're essentially trying to solve something, not necessarily a problem, but you're trying to solve either a need, a problem, a gap, you're trying to solve for it. And so it's really important to really understand that that critical piece of what is it you're trying to solve? What is the gap you are trying to fill? And being able to do that both with primary and secondary resources. So, you know, learning, we call that desk research. So whatever is known about this thing, this problem, this gap, and then also going out and and talking to folks who have familiarity with it or who experience this problem, whatever that looks like, really taking a really long time with it. And I think that that is something that maybe isn't encouraged in a lot of spaces we work because, and this is something that my team and I, we literally have it written down in our terms of engagement. We try and really move away from what we call a manufactured sense of urgency where we have to often remind ourselves, oh, like we made up these deadlines. (laughs) It wasn't like this came from above and gave us, we made it up. And so sometimes there's an artificial sense of urgency that we need to stop ourselves. And I think that's really valuable when you're sitting in that getting to know your problem space. It's like, take your time. If you're going to invest time, money, labor into a thing, you got to be really, really sure about it. So take your time, get to know the problem. And then the second, the second aspect of design thinking, and initially it was created in designing for, you know, products or services like the Google right. and whatnot. The second stage is to some extent empathy building that is sort of built with that getting familiar with your problem. And empathy building is really like intentionally, not by happenstance, but intentionally building empathy with the people who this product revolves around either the people who are causing the problem or the people who feel the problem, whatever that is, just being really intentional about that empathy building. And it's not that, oh, that's so sad this is happening to them, but more, how does it affect them? What do they think about it? What do they feel about it? What do they do in response? What do they say? Really getting deep into the weeds of how does this thing affect these group of people? And then you move into ideation. And that's a process where you take all of this information and start to brainstorm, start to figure out, well, what could it look like based on everything we know? And then you go into prototyping and testing. So that's the point where you actually start building. And the thing that I loved about this was, A, the getting really specific about what it is you're trying to solve for, and B, taking your time to get into solution building. A lot of our clients, you won't believe how many times in a day I have to say this, like, Trust the process. We're getting there. Or I have to say, even to my team, ah, hold on. This sounds like, you know, solution building when we're still identifying the problem. We're human beings. And so as soon as we see, we're like, oh, this is a thing. So maybe we get to like, ah, no, (laughs) this is solution building. Hold hold still there for a second. That's really, let's get comfortable. Bring a pillow. We're going to be here for a while. And that's okay. (laughs) So that's that's CCD. It's so interesting you say that because when I was learning this process, that was the biggest challenge for me was just sitting in the space of the problem long mm-hmm. enough. Like I, one of my strengths is futuring. Yes. Right. So instantly I'm like solving things in my head as soon as we spoke to the first person on campus, right? Because we had to go do empathy interviews around the Stanford campus. And it was such a challenge for me. And I have to catch myself. Yeah. Really have to catch myself, especially if I'm leading groups or committees to not like shout out this, oh, I have this brilliant idea. And what do you think about this? Right. And and 
Yeah, I would imagine. Is that the biggest challenge you have with clients is just having them sit in that space of the problem long enough? Oh, yeah. No, I was going to say that that hands down and what how that comes to fruition is what we call a data story or essentially a report, which is after we've done this about three months audit or or just process of digging, we hand over what we found and where we think their biggest equity challenges are. And I, you know, I think one of the reasons that design thinking in this process was so attractive to me was because I think when it comes to equity, especially in a time like in 2020, when, you know, there was this like, just emergence of people who were like, oh my goodness, all of this is happening. What? There was racism, there's sexism, there's ableism, all these things that they were new to the space. They were doing that thing of A, not getting really, not understanding what the problem is, thinking the problem was those words, that race was the problem. Right. Whereas like, I gotta tell you, I, I, I'm a black woman and I, I enjoy it. It's quite, a, it's quite a good time to be a black woman. So like, I know that race as a whole, it, my being black is not a problem, but there are problems that are informed by my race, right? And so they were really not sitting in the problem. They were trying to move to, well, what do we need to, what needs to happen? And organizations tend to do that because there's a lot of, I think, discomfort. There's discomfort. 100%. Yeah, and I think yeah. also, <laughs> People talk a lot about understanding that they will be uncomfortable when talking about equity, justice, diversity, inclusion. But what I've learned over time is that what people are actually prepared to be uncomfortable with is other people's trauma. That they're like, okay, this I can do. Sitting with other people's trauma, learning about the bad things that has happened to an individual and me as an individual being in that space while they share the trauma. But when we talk about discomfort, we mean sitting in the structural and systemic problems we have identified in your organization that are affecting people in very specific ways and we are showing you. So, for instance, it's one thing for me to say, you know, Melanie, you're going to be uncomfortable because I'm going to tell you about the time someone, you know, yelled a slur at me. And as much as it is uncomfortable, like you, I think you're you're going to be better equipped to take it on because we're taught all of the things about being kind and listening, active listening. We're taught all these things. Now, right. I said to you, Melanie, I did a, an audit of your department and you are fairly diverse. You have a lot of women of color. But in doing that audit, I found that almost all women in co of color in your department are at the most junior level. And there's a discrepancy specifically for the indigenous women of about $20,000 in their salary. That's a very different kind of discomfort because right. suddenly we are talking about not a, uh, a, like an, a thing that has happened that has really nothing to do with you, but it's a very specific process-driven action that you have the ability to act on, but you also have to understand that it has been happening under your watch. That's a very yes. different type of discomfort. And that's what yeah. that sitting in there, you know, forces people to do. And I think it's even more challenging for clients because we have sort of a golden rule that when we give that report, it needs to go to every single employee. We need everyone to have eyes on this report. And that is a cause of a lot of stress often. <laughs> yes. I love that though. I, oh, there's so much in there. Um, <laughs> when I, when I think about, you know, what I've seen over the last year and even my own journey at work and for myself individually, I think 
you're absolutely right Mm -hmm. about, you know, I think we're comfortable saying we're privileged. I'm comfortable saying that as a, a white woman who was born and raised by white people in Canada and having access to education and, and all these sorts of things. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm comfortable saying that, but I think our tendency is to just keep trying to learn about the other <laughs> as opposed to learning about ourself and our own role mm-hmm. and how we maintain those systems mm-hmm. that get in the way of equity in our organizations and yeah. yeah absolutely like and so many people you know we I've talked about this with so many people about well what can I do okay so we're all reading we're all learning <laughs> we're taking courses yeah. you know all of that stuff and but how much time are we really spending reflecting and and trying to consciously upend those systems Mm, that maintain this you know and I I think you're absolutely right about that and and it is uncomfortable and they're tough conversations but it's the only way for change is it not yeah it's really interesting you say that because we as a company exist in in a very strange place in that for I think I, I want to say I might be wrong here. Last time I looked it up, but things like training, like um, unconscious bias training, anti-racism training, they emerged around the '70s, specifically in the U.S. And they emerged not because we, you know, we were trying to make spaces more inclusive, but there was this flow. There was this beginning of a flow, and it went on quite a lot till the '80s of a different kind of person in the workspace. So before that, corporate workspace specifically were dominated by white, you know, sort of middle-aged men. Right. And then around the mid-70s, late 70s, you've had a lot of women come in, a lot of black folks, a lot of people of color start coming to the job, into the job market and and more the professional job market. And what a lot of specifically HR practitioners or people, managers were seeing were that A, those middle-aged white men were not reacting well <laughs> and it was going to be a cause for concern and more specifically a cause for legal concern because this was also the time when we were having a lot of pretty big landmark cases across North America around this region. Right. And so these courses were created to help the sort of dominant group be more comfortable with the transition that was coming in. Mm. And the tricky thing is, that core reasoning for, you know, this type of approach to diversity and equity has not really changed much since the 70s. It's still built around the idea that we need to heavily focus on individual people, making them a little bit more comfortable, giving them knowledge in the hopes that there will be, and this is the key part, behavior change. And I think this is really important, especially for the people who are listening, who I know are in either wanting to come into the HR space, in the HR space, are either influential or, or building up to being influential in this space. We There's still a really heavy focus on behavior change as a core concept in how we do this. Like we want to help people be different, that idea of listening and learning. And I think it's that is so important at an individual level. But right now, what we're all talking about is 
organizational. You know, you mentioned that you're leading the DEI work in your university. This is an institution, right? And so the problem with focusing on behavior, the individual behaviors of people, is that what we know about behavior change and the psychology behind it is, A, it's very difficult, right? What we're talking about are things like um, rehabilitation centers where you're immersed in that for, you know, X amount of time and that's all you're doing to change behavior. You, I, I mean, I think you're going to come up with a brilliant strategy, but I highly doubt it's going to say the university needs to close down for a year and all we're going to do is work on changing our individual, like, you know, undo all of the socializing we've had over the last X amount of years in our lives. And that's very difficult for an organization or institution to do. So what we do is we try and really move people more towards what we call the structural change approach. And that's difficult for some because what we are accustomed to is, you know, coming into a room once a year, maybe for three hours, talking about racism, talking about sexism, you know, being given recommendations for books to read or podcasts to listen to or, you know, stats. And that's all really useful, except... That is not going to, like you said, radically change the aspects of the institutions that are making inequity possible. And so that's why we try and focus really on structures. And I I think about it this, I I like to describe it this way. If I said to you, Molly, okay, I'm offering you a job in my organization. Here's your office. You've got the four walls, ceiling and floor. There's a window here. You are welcomed to... decorate your office however you want, you want pictures of your kids, go for it, knock yourself out. And you have to do it within these structures. Now, if I come back into your office a day later and I found you like stuck your desk halfway out the window, you're trying to knock down a wall because you want to expand, I don't know where, I'm going to be like, well, hey, you know, I need a little room here, but you've got to work within these four walls. That's our structure. And what we work on as an organization is building structures for equity. So the people can really, you know, come in and be the, their best selves, but they're going, their behavior will be informed, informed by these structures. And these structures will stay long after they leave or they retire or they move to a new department. Right. Yeah. So essentially what you're saying is that behavior follows structure. The hope is. And I think we also have to be careful not to be too simplistic. Like they'll happen. They they happen at the same time, separately, together. And it's really important as an individual to go through that work just to be a good human in the world. But yeah, like an organization can't inform behavior as much as they can inform structure. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's harder work. It's harder and work. It's, yeah. And it's not a box you can just tick off and no. say we're done. Yeah. It's, I, I've really learned that over the last year, working with some amazing individuals on our campus. I was part of this EDI fellowship that was helping to animate the institution-wide EDI plan. And, you know, what I learned is that this is really emotional work it's very intense and it's also it's gonna take a long time like there there aren't it's not about quick wins it's like you say it's about fundamentally changing the structure of how we how we work how we interact how Mm -hmm. we you know invite people to 
be part of our organization. It, it's so huge. And, and I have to admit, you know, even after being in human resources for 20 years, I didn't really grasp that mm -hmm. until I was sort of involved with, with some of that work. And yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's immersive and it takes time. I, I joke that it took us, you know, a few hundred years to get to where we are now. So it's, 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 it's going to take a minute to undo any, yeah. <laughs> any stuff there. But I think what's really important, you know, for folks who are, again, like you said, you've been doing this work for 20 years, some are new to it. The really important thing is to really value that process of understanding your problem, getting really specifics rather than saying diversity is the problem, getting really specific and saying, you know, like I mentioned, there's discrepancies in pay or, you know, our senior leadership is not diverse at all and why that is a challenge like get really specific about it if it's around for instance there there are parts of this work that are going to be surprising to you for instance some of our clients always wonder why we focus on something like performance assessments or performance management in in equity and that's because we know that there's research research that tells us like ambiguity and lack of lack of clarity around performance, how it's assessed in mobility is the most detrimental. It's detrimental to everyone, but it's the most detrimental to women and new immigrants. Mm -hmm. They are, they have to depend on this like cultural knowledge, this knowledge, again, the old boys clubs that the yep. groups have never been a part of. And so they are, and we have the numbers for it. They, you know, move up at a much slower rate. Um, they are thought not to, you know, have the signs of like in quotes leadership, that type thing, because it's not, it's not well documented, it's not well codified, and performance management is an area where a lot of organizations are heavily lacking, but they don't think about it as an equity problem. Right. Yes. And that's why we also want to like HR practitioners are a really good starting point for this work but it's really important that equity is not thought of as like it just lives here and it just has to do with things that are hr specific but it's this far-reaching aspect of everyone's work like everyone should be thinking about what are the barriers to access and to participation in the work i do and how do i embed equity into that work into my very workflow yeah that's so interesting because i I completely agree with you on the performance management process mm. because when, I mean, and those are, those are the systems that allow people at the top to create new positions for people yeah. they like or that support them. Mm. And yeah, unfortunately I see way too much of that yeah. still yeah. happening. Right. And it's really easy um, when it's not like codified and documented that's when when people there's nothing to follow clearly that's when we start and that's when you start here like where things like unconscious bias to me are the places we should be talking about it is when it's not codified our brains we're human beings we're, we're wonderful creatures but we're also terribly flawed and that when we don't have any information we go to things like our stereotypes we go to things like yes. unconscious parts of our brain that try and feed us the information we need that's when we start thinking oh well you know susan doesn't really you know she's not very authoritative so i don't actually think she can take on this management position right mm -hmm. yeah absolutely you know something that I've been that I've been thinking about a little bit that I'm curious about is where do you believe that uh, a 
EDI specialist or an EDI office, where should that be placed in the organization in your view? Because you just said like, it's not just an HR problem. And I think, you know, that's one of my pet peeves with how our profession is treated in organizations yeah. is that anything related to people will just get, <laughs> well, HR will take care of it when really so much should be led by the top of the organization or at yeah. least really driven from that from the highest office and and I wonder what your thoughts are on yeah you know in terms of having someone in that role or even a a department or a function yeah that's a really great question and a tough one too because I think my ideal is going to feel very out of reach for a lot of people we still want to hear it okay we'll go for it we'll go we'll we'll go for we'll shoot for the stars shoot for the moon Um, so I think in a in a perfectly ideal world because of where we are at this moment in time, whereas we cannot with full confidence say everyone in the organization is actively embedding equity into the outcomes of their work. I think where a lot of organizations may find a lot of value is having, like you said, a senior leadership position that is created like any other department. And I like to, I really like to stress that created like any other department in that they have budget, they have resources, they have labor, yes. they have standards, and they have authority within other departments. That's the, mm. the, a, a really important aspect because the challenge with putting, I mean, this is okay. So this is where we move from stars to clouds a little bit here. Um, okay. The reality is that, like you said, people think DI. And, you know, often they only think of D, (laughs) diversity, and what we call aesthetic diversity. So organizations have a bit of a panic when they look around. They're like, oh, my God, we do not look diverse at all. We need to do something. And that's aesthetic diversity. That's really, like, centering all of your work on this idea that we do not look X or Y or Z. Mm -hmm. You focus all your energy. And that goes to the lack of the people who literally have human in their job title, right? And that's a difficult spot because I think HR at its core is an incredible function of any organization because you are literally being given the job of ensuring that the people in this space are have everything they need to thrive and have the systems and the processes necessary for them to do the best possible work and to do it well. The challenge, though, is that you exist in this middle between, you know, right. the the needs of the organization, not a human being, and the needs of the people in the organization, human beings. And that doesn't put you in a great position to really, A, start to look at things at a systems level and make the necessary changes because you're always having to think, well, is, you know, for instance, I, I, I know a lot of HR practitioners who want to do this work and then they're having to be told, well, do we have to take this out of our budget? Are we going to have to take this out of X, Y, Z? Or who can we borrow from? No one wants to touch this because it's DI and so it's ours. And then what they're forced to do is go back to that 70s model where they say, okay, well, maybe we'll just hire someone for three hours. That's not going to make a dent and it's still going to look like we're doing something because part of this is like your own performance. And so I think a good sweet middle here is that for all the HR practitioners listening, you're going to have to act a little bit like Trojan horses. You're going to have to take on some of this work to start, but really make it clear and make the case. And sometimes you're going to have to figure out 
what do the people above me, how, what do they need to hear? You know them better than I do. Is it the business case they need to hear? Is it the public perception case they need to hear? Whatever they need to hear. Make the case that there's only so much that can happen within your space. Or if you have the budget, let's say, to do a really thorough audit with an external um, organization, just so you'd be able to hand it to your manager and say, well, listen, the challenges they pointed out were in finance, were in communications. We have no, we can't touch that. So someone else needs to take ownership of that. And you'll start to find that the challenges aren't just around how you manage people. They're also about how every single system process and, and um, uh, way of working throughout the organization is going to be touched and needs to be given ownership across the board. And so that's either going to look like every, you know, creating a table by which every department is represented and that's where you start doing your equity work or having a senior person there with a team who can do that work. And so you're going to have to act a little bit of a Trojan horse knowing that you're, you're, long-term get is that but short-term you need to do some incremental work and make some really strong cases Mm, I love that I love that and it answered one of my questions uh, (laughs) without me having to ask it yeah no I think that's a, a really important takeaway because I know there's a lot of individuals out there that are you know their organizations are are coming to their HR people. I've been approached Mm -hmm. by um, associations Mm -hmm. who want to get involved with this work and they, they want to start to, you know, put a person in there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, but I think really going back to your original point about the work you do is really trying to to sit with the problem a little bit longer before you hire somebody and figure out where to place them in the organization. Cause I think the default is to hire, you know, a specialist or a coordinator, plunk them into HR, don't give them any budget and then expect that the at the end of the day, visible diversity is changed. Yeah. Right. And so let's, let's start collecting some data about our people. Let's set some targets. Let's do some training and off we go kind of thing, right? Yeah. And that, that's something, I maybe you've heard this term. Initially, it was uh, specifically for women, but it's called a glass cliff, really similar to the glass ceiling, which is the yeah. idea that you set someone up. And I, again, traditionally, this term is meant for women. You set a woman up in like a um, really high level seat, knowing that they're going to fail so that when they do fail, it's like, well, you know, we tried our best. We gave this to a woman or we, you know, did that. And then side where it's like, you're hiring a like a DEI practitioner, giving them zero budget, giving them Mm -hmm. zero authority people. And that means that their, the work will be, you know, menial at best, or we'll have to just, they'll be forced to focus on that um, aesthetic diversity or very little work at all. Whereas this work, if I can say one thing to the people listening, it's, there, you need to really value data. Data doing data-driven work is your best is, is your best starting point. Really being really specific about who is there, what level they're there at, what your environment looks like, what the general population community, what your industry, what that looks like. Like getting really familiar with data. And I won't lie, it's difficult for us because Canada doesn't collect a lot of disaggregated data. It's going to be yes. a tough one, but you still need to put in that work. And then when you get to the end, is ha- is is really focusing on measure. Like, how will you measure the efficacy of whatever it is you're doing? And that 
acts as a bit of a litmus test because it's really hard to measure. If you say these are the problems I have identified, like if you say we've identified that, let's say our programming is completely inaccessible to Indigenous youth, whatever your programming is, and then you go through the entire process, take on some actions. Maybe your action is that you're going to do sensitivity training to your team. But when you get to the measure, there's how do you measure how accessible your programs are to use if your action was training to your staff. So that is a really good litmus test. And that's why measurement becomes really important because if you can't clearly measure the solution to the problem, then it might not be as tangible or as actionable as you thought it was. Or it could be the wrong solution. Or it could be the wrong solution altogether. That's really important. Yeah. I, I think that is important. And I know, like, even within our own organization, we've had lots of these conversations about data. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some cases, there's a real reluctance for people to even share data. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's this there's this whole exercise in just building trust mm-hmm. first that has to happen before you can even go out there and ask people in your organization to share this data with you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't take the time to do that, you're either not going to get sufficient data or the right data or any data that's <laughs> going to help you, one, uncover the problem and B, create the right solution. And, you know, again, that takes time and it takes expertise and it takes <laughs> yeah, sitting I'm, with it, right? It's, it's tough work. I'm only laughing now because one of the the biggest things that I hear often is this idea of we can't do this work because we are not X black or this or that or the other, like some kind of identity. And what you just said is exactly why I don't think that is a true statement. Because for instance, what you're talking about in doing this work is the ability to know how to collect data ethically, to know how to analyze it, to know how to use it, to know how to create uh, solutions and to measure. And none of those things require you be black or woman or indigenous right. <laughs> of the sort. And so that that's also a, a big aspect of this is what we're asking you, definitely your empathy, empathy is going to help you be able to think about the human aspect of the work that you're doing, but don't let it be the reason you stop or slow down mm-hmm. to say, well, we need someone with lived experience. The, okay. The goal of equity, the goal of doing work for equity is not diversity, it is equity. And this is going to be controversial because diversity mm-hmm. is always at the center of this work and, and how people see this work. But the problem is when you start thinking the sole purpose of diversity of your work is diversity it's bringing people in i gotta tell you that's low-hanging fruit because there are not a lot of people who if you give them a good like offer good money good benefits people want jobs people want to work in good places right that's not difficult but once they come in what are they experiencing what are the structures in play what what is it they're coming into and that's where that equity work is focused in that when you focus on those structures the immediate outcome might not be oh you're going to get this you know, sort of groundswell of people from so many different communities. It's going to be that you have an equitable workplace. And maybe down the road, that might mean that people are like, you know what, this is a place I would like to work. But that shouldn't be your primary focus. Yes, that's, that's so true and, and brilliant. And actually, we've, 
we've just started to kind of reframe that conversation within mm-hmm. the school of business because, and that was part of our shift. We, we really did begin with diversity is a challenge. Yeah. There aren't enough X number of people yeah. <laughs> visible, you know, and, and we started with recruitment, which isn't a bad thing, but that's, that's where we started. Cause we, we did know that there were some gaps there, Yeah. but now that people are willing to, change the way they recruit and hire Mm. now the conversation is really shifted to okay but what if we have this (laughs) flood of diverse applicants how there are challenges within how they are treated their experience when they get here yeah and so that's that's where our focus is shifted and and I have to you know it's a much it's a much tougher problem as you say and and you know we're just starting to have these conversations but I I I think that's such an important point yeah and I I appreciate you saying that because I I would I would really encourage everyone to think through when they start thinking about a solution like what they're going to do continuously ask yourself who is this in service of and what exactly is the problem so if we're saying we are not diverse instead of saying we need to do xyz to be more diverse ask yourself why because often where there's smoke there's fire are your is your process for applications inaccessible? Is it the language? You know, you all of the, especially around recruitment. There's so many resources when it comes to DI right. around how to make your recruitment process more inclusive. Actually, quick, like we have a whole guide for that. Inclusive. I saw that. Yeah, you know, there's there's a process for that. But again, where there's smoke, there's fire. So if your recruitment is riddled with barriers, chances are after recruitment, some pretty you know large problems probably exist and you also need to be putting your attention there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to shift gears a little bit because I could talk to you about this for (laughs) hours, but I'm mindful of your time. If someone, you know, again, this podcast is is focused on emerging HR practitioners. I'm seeing tons of job postings for you know, DEI positions and coordinators and specialists now, what advice would you have for an emerging HR practitioner that's really passionate about this work, that's really interested in pursuing a career in DEI? What advice would you have and and what does a career path possibly look like? That is... In this field, I think probably one of the toughest questions you could probably ask me, because yeah. realistically speaking, this isn't good. But realistically speaking, HR, you know, HR has sort of certifications. There are you know bodies that ensure you are doing work in a certain way. Right. Equity, diversity work doesn't have that. So technically speaking, if you want to get into the space, you literally could just change your LinkedIn profile <laughs> and say you want to get into DEI. So technically speaking, I mean, I don't, I don't encourage it, but technically that is yes. the extent of, of what you would need to do to position yourself. But if you want to do this work well, which is very different, and if you actually want to add value to the people you work with, I think first and foremost, there does this is where I think that individual work is valuable when you're doing it with yourself. 
I think first and foremost, you need to really build up your individual knowledge base and your understanding of your own positionality, because as much as you don't need to have lived experience of X, Y, Z to do this work, you still need to be well aware of your positionality and what you are equipped to do and not equipped to do. Yes. You're going to be doing a lot of reading and it's going to be difficult because there's not a, a you know, like there's no selected readings that a professor will give you to know everything around everything, which means that by virtue of just that alone and the, by virtue of the fact that people in society changes so rapidly and we work in the business of people in society, this is a role that requires constant knowledge building. So for instance, this year I spent a ton of time just doing a ton of reading around um, disability advocacy and disability mm-hmm. justice, because that is a space in which I did not feel fully equipped. And just thinking about the diversity of of what it means to be visibly or invisibly um, disabled. And so this is a line of work that will require this consistent level of learning, but one that isn't, you know, it's not structured in that, like, I know, for instance, I have a cousin who's an actual science and she needs to take these constant tests. There's no one to test you. There's no one to ensure right. you're doing this learning. So it's going to be very self-motivated. And then I would say the other tricky thing about not being sort of not having a body that that manages us as a, as a as a field is that there is no one agreed upon method. So a lot of this will have to be after you've done that reading, do some digging into well, what a where does my skill set where do my skills lie? So if you're HR practitioner, let's okay. say your skill, you're you're really skilled in systems or policy building, that may be where you want to start focusing and say, okay, within this realm of equity, where does policy building start? And that's actually a really critical piece because what we know yes. is that structural inequity has been reliant on things like policy because you can just say, well, this is our policy. A little bit right. of fact is um, Queen's University, I believe, they had it in their books up until I think like 2018 that uh, Black applicants could be refused into their medical school. This is up until 2018. It was literally, <laughs> they just removed it. And I mean, they didn't, I don't think they applied it up until 2018, but it was in the book. It was there. Exactly. And so policy is a really great place where inequity just thrives. So if that is where your wheelhouse is. That's where you can start focusing your work and really positioning yourself as someone who has the ability to really go through policy and find the areas in which equity lives and where it is allowed to thrive and where there are opportunities for us to get really specific and radical about how to make those changes. So find it's sort of like that, that ICA guy, you know, finding where you're speciality is finding the area of this work through a ton of reading and knowledge building that you think you can, you know, use that lens and then building something. Because again, there is no standard method. We we have built right. a method that we call the quick web method that borrows heavily from results-based management and design thinking, but that is not a standard. <laughs> there is no standard. Right. Yeah. I I, I think that's really great advice and important for people to understand that are, you know, drawn to, to that work. And I mean, it's, it's taken the HR profession a really long time to even get to a national standard. It wasn't that long ago, really, that, you know, HR was seen as a profession the same way that this, that being an accountant was seen as a profession, like it's not that long ago. So definitely challenges there. So 
can you tell us a little bit about Quake Lab and what your organization offers and, and if people want to work with you, how can they work with you? I know you've got some amazing, <laughs> an amazing website. It's not only visually beautiful, but it, I mean, it's so perfectly laid out and it's easy to find things and, but, but you have a lot going on and a lot of things that can help organizations and, and HR professionals that are drawn to the work. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I think we, you know, there's one aspect of it, which is free easily available resources. So if you go to our resources page on the website, quakelab.ca, we try and post out relatively um, frequently, so at least once a month. And what we really focus on is trying to create content that is really accessible and can turn into action. So when we write the kind of first thing we're thinking is, what do I want someone to be able to do after they finish reading this? And so we right. try and make it as focused and specific as possible. So there's a lot there. There's even, I believe there's a post on, you know, if you're building an internal DEI committee, because maybe you don't have the budget or the funds to be, you know, looking externally for this, for this type of support. So what does that look like when you're doing it internally? You know, looking at something that is one of our best read resources is for communications um, practitioners. Like, okay. Like it says like, uh, your comms, marcoms, so and marketing communications people are not DI experts, which I think also resonates with HR folks because you're always like that, like, oh, well, you're an HR, so you're an expert on this. You must know. You must know something about this. Um, so there's a ton of free resources there at your disposal. And that if you sign up to our newsletter, you'll get them um, when they first come out. And then on another sort of sliding scale that paid is what we call uh, Quake Lab DIY. And that is our learning platform. And there we have resources that span from like $100 to a full course that we run uh, a couple of times in the year called DIY Inclusion, which walks you, it's sort of like a, a, a scaled down version of our bespoke consulting that walks you through an audit, designing for whatever you found, and then prototyping, building something and being able to measure it. So it's about 10 weeks long and it. Usually we do it by cohort, but we're considering just making it open okay. all times of the year. And so those are paid resources. And then there's working directly with us. So our right. sort of flagship work is the design thinking for inclusion process. And that is takes about around six months, give or take. And it's that really in-depth process of doing the audit, digging into every aspect of your organization, running surveys, empathy interviews, all of that. And then it comes into a data story or the report, and then we move into designing. So we collaboratively design for a solution for one of the challenges that we've identified. It's a tasking, it's a tasking uh, uh, job, and it's long, but I think it's a really good starting point for just hitting the ground running. The great thing is this data story, this report acts as, I mean, we've had lots of organizations who started using it as their starting strategy because they have this really great layout of like the challenges. And we also have a section on quick wins and a section on um, the calls to action from the TRC. So the ones that we think you're okay. suited to tackle and how we think you can tackle it. So it becomes a really good sort of like framework for what a strategy might look like. Beautiful. I think that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I love your, I love your DYI resources. Like I can awesome. see a lot of people wanting to engage yeah. 
in that way, especially if they're just getting started, they don't have a huge budget. Like there's uh, some items that are, I think you have one, one that's only a hundred dollars. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the don't do unconscious bias training webinar. Yes. Yeah. The most recent one is also, I think it's so part of it is free. It's going back. It's a guide to going back to work. And it's just built around a really great chunk of resources around having this conversation and moving through what might that look like using a really strong equity lens. And so the, the, the one section or I think two sections that are free. And then I think for $300, you get a guide on how to analyze your survey. So this, I think the survey is free, analyze your survey and what you need to consider specifically for marginalized, marginalized employees when you're thinking about going back to, to the office. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And, the rec- and the recruitment guide oh, yeah. as well is in there too. And I think, you know, I think that's like our organization. I think that's a natural starting point for a lot of folks. Yeah. And so I, I was really happy to see that because I think there's, you know, having some some support and guidance there to to go through the process. Yeah. And I, I encourage anyone that that's starting at that place to check out. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, I mean, I'm biased, but it's a fantastic resource, especially because it, it's it's about 20 some odd pages and it takes you from like the second you need, you know, a human being in a chair all the way to making an offer. So it's quite comprehensive. Beautiful. Love <laughs> it. So Sharon, do you have a couple minutes to yeah. do some speed questions with Let's me? Just some for fun questions. Okay, awesome. Uh, so the first one is, if you could work for any organization in the world, one that you admire, yeah. what would it be and why? Oh my goodness, that's an excellent and terrible question. Okay, <laughs> It's always the hardest one for people. <laughs> Mostly because I know nothing about what this career entails, but just looking at it from the outside, it looks amazing. I would love to be one of those travel influencers because it looks like all they do is travel the world and take beautiful pictures. Obviously, I know that's not all there is to it, but <laughs> just aesthetically, that is that is a dream for me. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. That would be <laughs> They're always in like infinity pools right. with like platters of food and drink. Pools. I've never seen that many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that does they're, look. They're gonna good. assume they're gonna they're gonna listen to this and message me. Our job is very hard. I'm like, I don't don't ruin the dream for me. I just it's the dream. <laughs> <laughs> it's all fun. It's all fun. And next question, and this is uh, this is always a good one. What is your go to activity to reduce stress? Oh, wow. I'm a very stressed out person. So that's an interesting question. Um, I'm going to go ahead and very, con- I don't know if it's controversial, but say sleep. I am, if you ask me what my hobby is, it is sleeping. I am an excellent sleeper. I can sleep anywhere. <laughs> I love just like so deeply. I can just weave sonnets and poems about my love for sleeping. And it is an excellent stress reliever. <laughs> well, you know, and it, I think it's an, undervalued part of people's health is good sleep. Like I think we're so used to just running on a few hours and pushing through and this whole, I can't can't relate. (laughs) No. And it's, and I mean, I'm so guilty of that, of Mm -hmm. being in this busy cycle and, and especially when my kids were really little and Mm -hmm. I was working and I was completing my MBA and, and I was a single new single mom yeah. and sleep just, and I just hard. didn't, I got myself down to five hours oh, of sleep a night. And now I look at it and 
<laughs> if I hit that alarm button and it doesn't say at least seven hours, I'm like, I add a half an hour to it. I'm like, That's, I love I'll that. use dry shampoo and I'll take it. the extra it's half hour. That being said, if I was to choose second in the running, my favorite thing, which, you know, I know listeners can't hear me, so they're going to immediately think I'm 400 years old. But something <laughs> I love to do more than anything in the world is do a puzzle, 500 only. A thousand stresses me. Five hundred piece puzzle while watching Golden Girls. <laughs> Favorite thing. <laughs> Favorite thing. <laughs> Love that more than anything. <laughs> Golden Girls was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> My parents watched it. The other one that we always watched that always made me laugh was Three's Company. Oh, I, I've never seen that. <laughs> really? Oh, it's, 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 it's so. It. so it's probably so bad and not politically <laughs> correct well. now. Yeah. No, but it, gosh, it used to make us laugh. Like it was. Yeah. So again, now now everyone thinks we are both four hundred years old. But that's, that's okay. right. That's all right. We're gonna take a picture at the end and prove <laughs> just to prove. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, if you could go back to the day you graduated from university or high school, mm. it sounds like you were a pretty wise. Uh, fresh graduate. My mom but, would not say the same, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's our job as moms, right? What advice would you give yourself if you could go back to that person? Well, I'd say two things. One, there are a lot more jobs than you think they are. Um, mm -hmm. I realized when we all leave school, we have a very limited view of the kind of work we could do, especially like, yes. I, again, I have African parents. So in my world, it was lawyer, doctor, engineer. <laughs> I mean, if you're being wild, maybe, I don't know, like something outside of it, but really stick within those three things. Um, yes. But um, I'd say 90% of my career has been made up. Like I've just made up my jobs. And so I wish I could tell my my younger self that, like not to worry too much about finding the thing that already exists because I could just fully build it. And then I don't know if this will be good or bad for folks who are listening, but I am a strong believer now when I'm now older and wiser that college is, is okay. You know, I think we have a lot of, there's a lot of a, what is the word? elitist thinking around university versus college and I loved university I loved what I learned I think it was a great learning space but college is also a great option either with university or yes. on its own fantastic place to get some really practical skills yes yeah. and honestly I mean I grew up with my mom was a high school teacher and you know, finished her education when she had kids and had already sort of changed careers in between. But one of the things she always says that still sits with me is that no education is a waste. Oh, yes. And I've really said that to my kids. And, you know, I, as I shared with you, my daughter's finishing high school, she's starting university, there's all this intense pressure. And when I ask their friends, her friends like, what do you think you're going to do next year? And they're so stressed out about oh, deciding. And and I just say to them, you know what, you got, you guys are so young. Yeah. And there are so many things you can try. And if you don't like something, try something else if you can. Like you, yeah. you don't have to get it right the first time you step foot outside your parents' door. It, oh, it's okay yeah. to fumble to, to mess up time to mess up because it's, it's well, totally. <laughs> well yeah absolutely and and the stakes are are fairly low for most of them right yeah. so yeah i think that's great advice my 
super important question, coffee or tea? <laughs> I love those. Okay. Um, you're going to hate me for those, but definitely uh, both. I, I have both. You're <laughs> having both. But um, a few years ago, I learned that I have, I think it's a hormone. I can't remember now that um, kind of makes caffeine do the reverse for me. So I get very sleepy. <laughs> no way. I love, I love a good cup of coffee. love a good cup of tea, but it actually doesn't do the job. With me. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle that. <laughs> but I still, I mean, I, I'm the weirdest one. I'll be like, I'm going to snuggle up with a cup of coffee before bed. 100% right? don't do that. <laughs> I'm a total coffee fan. As, <laughs> as my listeners know, it, it fuels me. But I've gotten to this point in like the last, I would say, three years. Yeah. Where if I have it after three o'clock, there's trouble. <laughs> That's in the sleep Nothing's time. happened. Like it's, it's downhill from oh, there. <laughs> I wish. All right. Uh, you obviously read a ton. Maybe, maybe not. Yes, I do. I'm, I'm a big reader. <laughs> so which book or film has had the biggest impact on you as a person or a professional? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a hard question when you're a reader. Because I yeah. both I'm at once remembering every single book I've ever read and only only the book I read last month. <laughs> so like, <there's> no, <laughs> like either everything or nothing. <laughs> this is very very recent, but I just uh, actually two. So I'll say two that I've recently read that have really done a number on me in the best way. The first is Desmond Cole's book. The skin, the skin we're in, which yes. um, I thought was a fantastic book, A, because it was very accessible and an easy read, and B, because we don't often have a lot of books like that specific to Canada. And I think he did a fantastic yes. job giving a strong amount of research weaved in with storytelling. It was eye-opening to, for me, I don't live in Toronto and mm. a lot of stories were centered there, but it was... Yeah. Yeah, it was eye-opening. Yeah, it was, I, exactly. It was just, it was a fantastic, it was a fantastic read. The other was uh, Miriam Kaba's book, uh, We Do This Till We Free Us. That was an uncomfortable, but very useful read. It, she's an abolitionist, uh, so prison and, and police abolitionist. And so it's an uncomfortable read because that is, a, these are institutions that all of us have, sort of been raised with and, you know, understand as the pinnacle of justice and authority. And so going through it was incredibly uncomfortable, but also such a powerful read that has really made me change a lot of my thinking around community care and how we show up for each other and what mm -hmm. institutions do and what they don't necessarily need to be doing. Okay, I'm going to have to check that one out. And <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that sounds amazing. I will also link to both those books oh, awesome. show awesome. notes to this episode so folks can can read them and oh, please don't 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 hunt me down if they if they change your life too drastically. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Like I said, no education is is uh, awesome, right? It's important. Yeah. So Sharon, before we wrap up, if listeners want to connect with you, learn more about you, how can they find you? Well, um, if you find me on Twitter, I am sometimes saying nothing at all or ranting. There's no middle ground with me. Um, I'm at Sharon and then underscore O-K-E-N-O. -E That's my handle on Twitter. Other than that, if you go on the website and go to the contact us page, we try and get back to folks relatively quickly, so within 48 or so hours, and that would probably get you a 30-minute call with me. 
Okay, awesome. So if people want to engage their organization in this work or find out how they can work with you directly, then exactly. I will direct them to your website. And are your social media handles there on the website as well? They are. Our- so um, okay. the, the company ones, mine are, um, you might need to do a little digging for that. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you engage in that because if you really want to hear my unfiltered thoughts, maybe you do need to do a little digging for that. <laughs> you need to earn it. <laughs> it. Sounds like it'll be worth the journey. <laughs> I hope so anyway. Well, you'll probably end up with some connection requests after this. Awesome. So. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And, you know, as someone who spends the majority of their day in meetings, it's always so nice to have human conversations that isn't centered yeah. around, you know, what action item after this, you know, it feels good nice. to talk. That's awesome. Well, we really appreciate your time, your energy, sharing your your wisdom and your experience. It's been absolutely delightful to talk to you. And uh, I hope that we'll get to connect again and, and maybe even have an opportunity to work together in the future. I hope so. I hope so. Thank you yeah. so much, Melanie. I think I'm still processing everything I learned in that conversation. It's going to take me some time for sure. But I do know I really love the career reframe Sharon offered at the beginning of our conversation. And this idea that just knowing we come from a place of privilege really isn't enough. The structures that uphold inequities need to change in order for real change to happen. So powerful. I hope you had at least a few takeaways for yourself and possibly your organization. If you're working in an organization that's contemplating or engaging in EDI work, I really encourage you to explore the Quake Lab website and their offerings and reach out to Sharon directly. All her contact information can be found in the show notes of this episode. And if you're not already subscribed to the HR Mentor where you're listening, please click that button and never miss a future episode. And if you love the HR Mentor, please leave a comment or rating on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or leave a recommendation on LinkedIn. I always appreciate the support and the feedback. And don't forget to check out a summary of this episode with some helpful links, including Sharon's reading recommendations, as well as how you can connect with her. You can find this and a whole lot more at www.unicorngroup.ca forward slash episode dash 42. As always, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Bye for now.